Welcome to episode 10 of the Outfield Podcast. It is good to be with you, the third episode in the quarantine series. It's a great guest we have on today. Kirk Walker, assistant softball coach at UCLA, came out in 2005 as head coach of Oregon State, has been probably one of the most influential people coming out in all of sports, through the quality coaching lines, Go Space, so many of the things that he's done, probably one of the pioneers in the field of LGBTQ advocacy in sports, among many others. He has so many great things to say about where he came from, where we're going, with LGBTQ people in sports. It's another great edition of this show, so please enjoy Kirk Walker in episode 10. It's episode 10 of the Outfield Podcast. I've gotten three of these done during quarantine. I probably should have gotten more done during quarantine, but that's okay. doesn't matter because we have another amazing guest, another coach, Kirk Walker, assistant softball coach at UCLA. I, in many ways, you, you called yourself one of the godfathers of, you know, out people in sports. <laughs> Is that okay well, for the, you to call you that? The, go- the, the godfather go- sounds like I'm... I'm- like kind of controlling things, no, but no, no, uh, no. yeah, I, I certainly am. I'm I'm up there in the uh, in the scope of things in terms of age. Yeah, <laughs> well, not age. I was thinking more when I've done these interviews before. Firstly, thank you, of course, for coming on. When I've done these interviews, I'm used to interviewing people who have come out really rather recently. I I went back and just my own brain of thinking when have people come out that I've interviewed and in the, the most distant was like seven years ago. So mm. this is a so for. Most of us, I mean, I only came out a couple years ago. I've only started to become really aware of these things in this decade. And you've been you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, yeah, it has been a long time. <laughs> so you can provide a historical perspective on on this in ways that, you know, many of the other guests I've had cannot, which is a good change of pace. Great. I appreciate that. Uh, firstly, I have to ask, because normally... If this was a normal year and we weren't in the midst of a global pandemic, interviewing you in the middle of April would have been basically impossible. But for sure, I, this is this is generally a busy time of the year and uh, not not too many opportunities for uh, for extra things. But um, right now, we've got a lot of time on our hands. So, so I want to ask, how are you spending your time? Because as you know, as people know, softball is a spring sport, and you're one of the best programs in the country. So, really, from the turn of the calendar year until. June, you're knee deep in all of this, and you've now been a month with no softball in the middle of softball season. Which, yeah, I, yeah. I, I cannot imagine what that's like for you as somebody who's so dialed into a routine, but now that routine is completely upended. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing, and I, I wrote a story about it too for Outsports as well because it was, um, it's just an interesting time um, for us, obviously, historically. Not only, you know, everybody in the country and everyone in the world is dealing with it. But in the sports world, it, it really has been, um, you know, something that anomaly that I have never been a part of. And I've been coaching for 38 years. So it's been interesting. I think the first um, the first week, week and a half um, were pretty tough. Um, and I think there was just a lot of kind of grieving and just kind of like dealing with the whole loss of the season and the identity of the season and the identity of, of what we were kind of in the middle of the process of doing and unresolved, you know, kind of feeling. Um and then uh, school started up um, 
even though it's done remotely a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. And since then, um, I've been quite busy. So although it's uh, it's not in person, it's not practice, um, but we are doing a lot of Zoom calls with our athletes, uh, with planning for next year, with coaches, um, kind of dealing with a lot of the administrative side of things. And then I've had the great opportunity to spend a little bit more time doing some LGBT sports advocacy work. So I uh, just got off a, an hour and a half um, group chat um, with uh, people from GoSpace and ECA trying to work on some projects. And so, yeah, I, I'm keeping myself busy for sure. We're going to talk a lot about GoSpace and ECA in a bit because uh, I'm a part of that. I think that there's a, a good amount of stories in there. But I want to talk about you first and your story. And for those people, I don't know if you're listening to the show, if you don't know Kirk's story, but in case you don't, and there might be people on, who are listening to the show who have not a lot of idea of Kirk and where he came from. Tell a little bit about your story first, not just in softball, but your life growing up to give people an idea of who you are and where you came from. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, I, I kind of grew up um, in a household that was full of um, athletes and, and sports and always was that I had two older brothers and a younger sister and everyone was competing. And ironically, I actually um, I found myself really kind of um, accl acclimating and I guess getting much more attached with my sister's sports and her world. So and her journey. So when she was like 13, uh, I got uh, got the opportunity to start kind of coaching her travel ball team and being a part of that. And, and it kind of grew for me, obviously, becoming a head coach at travel ball and. Then I went into UCLA, obviously as an 18, 18 19 year old, um, going to UCLA and, and got connected to the UCLA program. And um, they were obviously a national champion, perennial powerhouse. And, and But it was really early in collegiate sports for women um, at the NCAA level. Um, everything had been AIAW before that. So um, it was a great opportunity, but it was um, a really interesting time for me. And I, I dove headfirst into kind of being a part of the program at UCLA as a freshman. Um, at the end of my freshman year, they said they wanted to put me on full scholarship uh, as a manager. And I did that. By this end of my second year, I was completely in a coaching role and, and moved to kind of an undergrad coaching position, which was kind of unprecedented um, at the time. So I did that, obviously, for the next three years. During that five years, I was in school. I won uh, uh, 84, 85, 88, so on, three national titles during that period of time. And, uh, you know, it came up the options to say, okay, now I'm graduating, what's happening after June? And they said, well, we want to hire you full time. I was offered a grad assistant position in neurophysiology um, at UCLA. And I had been kind of preparing and working to try and uh, get prepared to go on to med school. So, um, I had three choices in front of me and, and, uh, financially I took not the strongest one, but um, I opted to kind of stay on full time at UCLA and coach. And uh, really, I knew that my passion was in coaching. My passion was for uh, being around athletes and developing them. And that's kind of really where, where I took the step. And so I was hired full time and coached for another six years at UCLA total, um, total of 11. And we won uh, three more national titles while I was there. So seems good. it was what, six and well, how many six years? and 11 years. That, that so, yeah, good. yeah, it was uh, it was a great time. I was really fortunate to be part of an amazing program and really uh, be mentored by two of the, the icons, icons in our in sport, our sport and, and be around, around so many of the great, great national team and, and uh, Olympic, Olympic level, uh, high level players. players that it was really an amazing time for me. And during that period of time, I started to, to expand. And, and that whole time, I will say this. 
is that because I was coaching at a young age and when I was kind of in, in college, while everyone was going off to the frat parties and to, you know, doing all the social things and hanging up and hooking up and all those kind of things that college students do, I wasn't. I was really diving headfirst into coaching. That was my world. It was between that and my academics. That's really all I was doing. So I wasn't um, really engaged socially. So I think part of that was me probably being a little bit in denial. And part of it was um, that that's where my passion was. So it, it wasn't a it wasn't a negative. It was that's where I was um, putting my energy. And um, it did, though, cause me to be in a situation where as I started to, you know, want to explore or start to realize that I had uh, more attractions uh, to men, I, I was really in a tough situation. I was living, you know, all of four miles from West Hollywood, but had never been over there and, and had no even inkling that, that that's someplace that I would ever go or there was no apps. There was no internet, uh, per se. I mean, there was internet, but not, um, you know, the, the ability to connect or read or learn. Um, it was really just a time that was, um, all about your, just your own personal experience. And I just, I had none. So it was a tough time for me, um, as, as a young adult trying to figure out who I was and, and how I was going to try and meet somebody. I, I assumed that it was going to meet somebody in softball and marry somebody in softball. But uh, obviously fate had a different hand. And um, after 11 years of coaching here at UCLA, I had the opportunity to be head coach and I was recruited up to Oregon State was a great opportunity for me. And I think something that I really was eager for, not only to be a head coach, but I think moving away from home was something that um, in hindsight was probably important for me to develop um, as an individual and kind of uh, move away from everything that I knew to kind of allow myself to kind of explore and figure out um, about my sexuality. So moved up to Corvallis, Oregon, very small town, nothing Nothing was going to be learned in Corvallis, so I spent my time uh, kind of drifting up to Portland um, and uh, kind of exploring, um, you know, going to, to either a gay bar, which I'm not a drinker, so that was a challenge, or trying to meet people. And back then, um, you met people on uh, voice personals, so uh, think internet minus the visual and minus is, is the instant. That, uh, is that aimed for older people? Because, again, I was born in the 90s. I know what AIM was like, and I can still remind people what AIM was like. Is it? Is it some? I know it's not entirely the same, but I have to point out. No, I mean, it's, it's um, I can't even equate it to what it's probably like. It's kind of like, it would be like Tinder minus the visual. You know, you, you left a message for, excuse me, you left a message for somebody. Well, first of all, you would go online, you'd create an account. You'd talk for, you know, maybe a minute or two about yourself and leave that message um, for people to look at. And then you would then search through personals and you would listen to their, um, to their ad describing themselves and what they were looking for or whatever. And then you would leave them a message. You couldn't call them directly. Um, you would just leave them a message and then they would pick up the message in their mailbox and they would listen to it. And if they liked what they heard, you might exchange phone numbers. Um, you know, again, there was no internet, so you weren't going to change your social media links or anything like that. And there was no visual. So you you were taking someone's word for what they described themselves as or what they looked like. So it was an interesting, interesting time, time for sure. Lives. <laughs> it, was, it was a slow process to meet somebody. So, uh, yeah, so that was kind of, uh, you know, I ended up um, 
one of the first guys that I really started, I got connected to and started dating, um, ended up being my partner for 18 years. Um, and, uh, that was most of the time while I was up there, obviously at Oregon state, um, while I was up there. So about nine years into that relationship, um, well I, at Oregon state softball wise, I had, uh, had the great fortune to kind of get that program turned around and win the pac 12, um, pac 10 at the time and take that team to a, a top 20 ranking, consistently. So I had kind of established myself in the softball world and had felt pretty uh, confident with my background and resume from UCLA and what I'd accomplished at Oregon State that I, I you know, was pretty um, well respected and I was had coached the national team. Um, I, you know, coached at every level. I was speaking across the country. I was somebody that was kind of viewed as an expert. Um, so I kind of felt that I was, you know, fairly accomplished in, in my field. Um, and at that period of time, I started to come out to different Olympians or different people that I had, that I knew, but it was just a select group of people. And it wasn't, um, something that I was widespread sharing, but it also wasn't something that I was hiding. So, um, I came out to my family and, and, uh, was kind of living a, um, you know, publicly in the closet, privately kind of out, um, kind of world. And I really wasn't super afraid of being outed. Um, because again, I felt like I was pretty uh, accepted in the, in the, in the industry and in my expertise and, but it was still kind of unknown because there was no, um, college coaches that, uh, were out. There was no professional coaches. There was nobody in the sports world really that was out and working in sports. The people that had come out in sports had come out after they had played or after they retired. Um, so I got connected to, you know, during that time, um, uh, Sid Ziegler with Outsports, and I'd known him for about ten years before I actually came out. And he'd always said, "Hey, whenever you're, you know, ready to do a story, we'd love to do a story." And I always said, "Nobody really cares, and it doesn't matter." Well, it was 2005. Um, my partner and I decided that we were going to adopt, and it was going to be an open adoption. So it was going to be my profile and my image was going to be publicly out there, and I. I wasn't really concerned about anyone, my family or anyone else knowing, because a lot of people knew and knew Randy, knew my partner, but I had never told my team. And I had this really, really deep seated um, fear with my team. Um, I don't know about rejecting me, but my team feeling really um, uh, kind of disrespected if I didn't share it with them, if they found out from somebody else. So. I knew that I needed to tell my team uh, publicly. And so it was our fall meeting in September um, of the 2005-2006 year. I was meeting with my team. I knew we were in the adoption process. And we got talking. We had a great team. We were the defending Pac-12 champions at the time coming back. And we had a great, talented team. And I just said, well, I guess there's one more thing I want to share with you guys. And I I don't remember the next 10 minutes were kind of a blackout for me, um, but I told them that I was adopting and that my partner and I had been together for a number of years and that I wanted them to hear it from me. And I don't even know exactly what I said. I, I probably rambled on and on and on because I was so nervous. And uh, when we got done, I, I asked the team, I said, do you have any questions or any anybody questions? And a couple of hands raised up and all the questions were you know, is it a boy or a girl that's coming? The baby, and when's the baby coming? And do you have a name picked out? And it was 
had nothing to do with me being gay or nothing to do with, uh, you know, my life as a, as a gay sports person. It was all about um, the baby. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, you know, it was um, uh, an interesting because it had I said that conversation in a group, of, a group of male athletes, I don't know if they'd all been asking about the baby, but uh, who knows. Mm-hmm. So um, ended up coming out the, the out sports. Um, Sid said, does this mean I can actually do a story now? And I said, sure. And uh, Jim Bozinski from out sports actually came up and we did a full um, feature article and they did it. And, um, it kind of uh, exploded right after that. A few weeks, a week later, the Portland Tribune called and they wanted to do an article. And then the New York Daily News called and then ESPN called. And it kind of just kind of had its own, um, energy behind it. And, uh, what it turned out was that if you Googled at the time, um, out coach, out college coach or out coach, there was, there was nobody in the media. So there was no college coach who had ever been publicly out. And so, uh, there was logo TV came out and filled a whole feature thing on it. So there was just a lot of media attention around it. And, and at the time I, you know, I, I kind of was resistant. And in the articles that you'll see, I had a lot of quotes where I was like, look, I'm a coach that happens to be gay. I'm not a gay coach. Um, I don't know what a gay coach is. Um, I'm a coach that happens to be gay. It's only one part of me. So I was really resistant to the whole, um, being labeled, but also just that it, people were making me into something that I really wasn't. Um, and I just said, look, I, I coach the same way. I don't coach any different. And at the time, again, social media didn't really exist. I was getting emails, um, anonymous emails from across the country, from hundreds of emails from people that were working in professional sports or college sports or former athletes um, that were just um, really affected by me coming out publicly and um, and the impact that it had had on them and how they viewed themselves and how they'd been hiding for years. And it was, it was really kind of overwhelming. And um, finally, I got to a really breaking point and I just said, you know, <laughs> if the media wants to label me as the gay coach and they're going to write an article, so be it, because those articles are affecting people that I don't even know. And so I can't be so arrogant to say, quit calling me the gay coach and quit doing articles about me being gay, because it was having such an impact on so many people. And um, it was really overwhelming um, and um, something that really impacted me. So that's that's kind of the the first part of the whole coming out process. And then there's been many, many years that we'll probably get into here about uh, what's changed and what happened and all the development of all the different organizations. So this is so far the easiest 17 minutes of podcasting I've ever done. <laughs> barely said a word. I like to let other people do my work for me. It's great. I have, I have questions based on this that I wanted to ask that you might not hear me trying to start a sentence and then stopping because I've edited that out already. But I want to start with a couple of things, getting back to what you said. Firstly, it's softball and the connection with softball, because, of course, your younger sister played it. What is the biggest attraction to you of softball? Well, it's interesting. And, and you know, I get asked this all the time. And I think my my thing that I'm most passionate about the sport is that it, it's really an individual sport that is disguised as a team sport. So when you look at football and basketball and soccer, and it, it, they're very much a team sport, like everything is based around, um, you know, combination plays and and yes individual athletes have skills but you really have to function as as teams and in softball it's really an individual sport there's a pitcher and there's a hitter 
and it's a one-on-one battle. Like it's not, a, there's no team behind you. Now the sport is played obviously with nine on the field and, and uh, you know, your bat nine batters and the whole deal. So you do have a team, but really where you are put on the stage and where you are put and challenged is very much as an individual athlete, much like a tennis player or a golfer where it's like, you know, there isn't, nobody has your back. Nobody is going to pick up the slack for you. Um, in that moment, you, you have the pressures and the, um, identity of an individual athlete, but you're disguised in team sport. And I, it's one of the great things I love about baseball and softball, both. It is, it is interesting when you think about it like that, because I don't think any of us really think about it like that, whether you're a baseball fan or a softball fan. I, I, I certainly don't think of it like that. And I mean, you, 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 you do in essence, and maybe now because I, we live in the era of fan graphs and analytics, we do think of it now more than individuals. But I don't yeah, think yeah. you're growing up and, you're, and when I was a kid, I played t-ball and baseball. I never thought of it like that. You know, yeah. maybe the only time I thought about it was when I was put at the bottom of the batting order and the coach <laughs> rather snidely said, uh, we're using you to set up the top of the lineup, which is not how like nine hole hitters are, are purviewed <laughs> in any way. But I mean, I didn't really care at that point, And I've only I've laughed at it now because I'm not really that good at baseball. I was only good at tennis. And, you know, I mean, when you realize you're not good enough as an athlete, you realize um, if you like sports, you have to spend your career talking about them, which is why I'm here right now. <laughs> uh, the other yeah. question I have to mention is, of course, you're coming of age in the 80s in Los Angeles in a time for the gay community. And we look back on it now, which was incredibly difficult. Yeah. And Los Angeles is in many ways the epicenter of that. So, yeah. I mean, you're not definitely thinking about it at the time, but now that you look back on it and you think about, you know, being a, somebody who's coming to grips with their sexuality in Los Angeles in the mid eighties, you know, do you look back on that in, in ways that you definitely didn't think about at the time, but do you think about it now in a different way than you might have otherwise, just because of the significance of that time for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it was an interesting time. I, I don't know that I was consciously thinking, Oh, I can't be gay because of AIDS or anything that was going on like that. But I certainly, you know, that was the whole AIDS epidemic and all that was developing and happening there was, it was a disconnect for me. It did, I didn't even identify with or connect with it. It didn't necessarily wasn't a hindrance for me even exploring my sexuality. It just was not a part of my even windshield. It, it just had nothing to do with me. I didn't really I grew up in a suburb. I didn't really think that I knew anybody that was gay. I didn't certainly didn't know anybody in sports that were gay. Um, you know, I, I didn't really know what it meant. Um, so it was, it was very much, and then obviously my parents were great, but those were conversations that you had. Um, there was no education in schools about, um, you know, sexuality or, or, um, different, uh, potential, um, you know, ways to identify. So it was really an interesting time of ignorance. Um, I'll just say, um, so looking back on it now, I think it's it's part of the reason why I, I was, um, I think, drawn to being in sports, though, is, is it gave me something to kind of identify as uh, a coach or as a, you know, a part of a team. And that identity became my, my most powerful identity, um, you know, skill or, or, or uh, characteristic was my my sports connection. So everything else was kind of put on the back burner. I was a good student and a good athlete, but it was really about my coaching that was really how I identified. Like me, when I was hearing that story, I was like, oh, I didn't go to frat parties. I didn't do any of that. I focused on, uh, you know, 
getting through school to get to being a broadcaster. Worked out really well because unemployment for four years is great, but you know, it's it's the same <laughs> principle of the thing, and and it yeah. sounds a lot like it sounds a lot like a lot of people. And it's not. I don't think you did it consciously to get away from your sexuality or to not ask those questions. But do you think, like looking back on it now, you some of those things were I'm doing this now because. I want to get away from these questions and I've asked oh, for sure. about this before. For sure. yeah. I, it's yeah. When you're thinking about other things and everything is so all-encompassing, you don't have time to ask the other questions, the questions yeah. that you don't have answers to. Yeah, and, and honestly, I, I think, you know, it, it all kind of, it happens for a reason. And, and um, I you know, when I first went to UCLA, I went to UCLA not to be a part of the softball program. I wasn't recruited in there and, and sports weren't highly visible. So I was taking that step to go to UCLA because I'd been at a really, really small high school with 19 in my graduating class here in L.A. And so UCLA to me was going to like the big world, like I was going to be able to disappear. And I think that was really enticing to me. Um, And then ironically, once I got there, I actually got connected to the softball program, which made it immediately a small community world again. And I and I went back into that um, safety net of just focusing on being an, a, a coach and I put everything else on the back burner. And I, yeah, I definitely think it was uh, subconscious for sure. And there's no doubt in my mind. So coming out in 2005, when this community is in a very, very different place than it is even five years later, let alone 10, 15 years later, and you're getting these emails from people who are in sports who are not out because at that point I again the number of people are out and I can't even remember you would know was probably you could count them on two hands yeah maybe that and yeah so, I mean you know Billy Bean and then there was um, you know uh, Dave Copay and there was um, you know, I mean there was certainly were but yeah it was a handful of people and they were all retired or done with playing they weren't uh, necessarily active and so and also you were the fr- and and most of these are athletes they're not coaches. So that's yeah. another, and that's another way, like for you, you probably, when you were described as the gay coach and, and I had, to, when I was talking with Chris Moser in another show, and it's so interesting now of how all these stories parallel one another. And you see that the more you do these, these interviews, the more you talk with people like this, the way you're described in these stories, you might resent it early because you don't want to be described like that. You don't want that to be your life. And that might be subconsciously the past for your life coming mm. back and saying, I don't want to be described like this, even though I'm out now. And you would think, well, maybe I could, I can deal with this better. I can embrace this more publicly, but you don't want to, because that's that subconscious part of your brain that had been, you know, keeping it down for so long, probably coming back. And then after a while you realize, actually, no, this is a good thing. And it helps other people, even yeah. if it might be personally, not what you like. It's, it's an interesting juxtaposition. And I think for everybody well, th- that you talk to in this community, you've talked to more people than I have. You get that sense from everybody, like this is something that they, you go through. Yeah, you, well, I think you went through it in a way that many others before you hadn't, because there were many others before you. Yeah, and yeah, it's really and an it's interesting, interesting thing, and I think I you've. Think it, it's, it's this is what I would say, and this is why I think sports is a different realm than so many different realms. Coming out process is a process. It's a peeling back of layers, um, and it's about obviously self acceptance for sure. Um, but the coming out process is, is hard for everybody and different for everybody. But in the sports world specifically, you, when you are in the sports, you are putting so much of your time and energy as you become a more elite level sport or elite level in sports, you, you really want to be known for what you do. You really want to be known for what you have trained, your skills, your talents, 
your efforts, your ability to be a good teammate. Like you really want to, you build an identity that you want to be known for. You don't want to be known for something that you don't have control over. That's just random. Like you don't want to be known as the blonde haired guy or, you know, the guy with, um, you know, you know, uh, a, a you know, a broken finger or a, you know, whatever it might be. You don't, that's just a fact of who you are. So in sports, when you are then elevated, and as I was being elevated though for those couple of years as being the gay coach, the gay was put in front of the coach. That's what was offensive to me because the gay, I have no control over. It's just a fact. The coach, my record, the things that I've done, that's I've worked hard for. So don't minimize those things behind something that I don't have control over. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's true in sports. When you're an athlete, you, you put your sport first. You put your training first. You put your oftentimes your team first. So the last thing you want to do is have media or anybody in society then identify you as something other than what you've what you've put the effort into. So if, if the lead was written a tiny bit differently, as saying that as a journalist, if it was Kirk Walker, coach in Oregon State, who is gay, I mean, forget the grammar and forget the fact that the syntax is bad. If it was written like that in those stories rather than the gay coach, and it was probably written as the gay coach for, you know, safe column inches, perhaps, like, would that have affected you differently if it was, if you put the gay coach after Kirk Walker, head coach of Oregon State? I, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think, you know, the, the reason why the article was written, this is what's also in, you know, a tough thing to swallow. I had plenty of articles written about me and my success athletically, but not to the extent of when I came out, when I came out, then there was a ton more articles about me. And yes, they were covering my, my, my accolades, but it was all about being gay. So it's interesting if they had labeled me as Kirk Walker, you know, uh, Pac-12 coach of the year, um, you know, this is his coaching record. This is how many national championships he's won. Oh, and he happens to be gay. I probably wouldn't have been as offended because look at all the things that would have been put in front of the, the gay portion. I know the article was going to be about written because I was gay, but the article was about me as a coach. Now, that's not as newsworthy to those organizations that were running the stores. They wanted to lead with the gay issue because that's what was the newsworthy to them. So – that's what made it offensive for me in the beginning. The only thing that separated it out that changed that for me was when I started realizing the impact for the people in sports that want to know about my athletic record. That's easy to find. Like it's easy to go online and find my records and my accolades. And for some people that inspires them and that's wonderful and great. And I love that. But for people that really were moved and changed and affected because I happened to be gay and these articles were written because I was gay I, I really then started to go, I just, I can't, I can't be mad about that label. I, and, that, and I literally says, like, call me whatever you want. I, I don't really care. If you're doing an article that's going to get to these people that I don't know and I'll never be able to meet, then by God, do it. And if, if you need it to do it, you're going to put a, a negative twist on it or you want to go for it. I don't really care. My, my record as a coach will stand alone. And, and I have to be okay with that. And it's interesting because it's not something that you could have ever thought about because again, you were doing it at a time when really no one else had done it. So it, that, yeah, I, yeah. that impact of, you know, seeing that story on other people who had never seen stories like that before, cause it's 2005. How the heck would you know that, you know, now I guess it would be different because there are tons of stories and 
all yeah, of them yeah. are impacting in, in much the same way. And we'll get to that in a bit with, with ECA and Ghostface. But for you at that time, you had no way of knowing that the impact would have been what it was because you just you didn't know how many gay people were in sports, period. Yeah, there had never been a, a publicly out gay coach in, in male or female. Um, now, this was what was the ironic thing was. And so, yeah, I, I, nobody knew what was going to come. No, this was going to happen. And even for myself in that fall meeting with the team, I, I was I felt like, well, there's no reason why this should affect anything. But I don't know. Like that team that we had going into that year was a very talented team. But they could have like completely transferred or disbanded or fought or who knows what. And, and we could have been horrible. It turns out that was the most successful year that I ever had as a head coach. And I took my team all the way to the College World Series that year. And that team um, set the NCAA record for consecutive wins. Um, it, it was an unbelievable journey. And all of that happened a few months after me coming out to them. And what I realized looking back now, even more so than at the moment, was that it, how it affected those athletes, those athletes felt even more connected to me. They felt that I was more authentic, that they, they could relate to me, that they knew that I was, um, you know, more than just their coach and that I had entrusted them with something really personal and really valuable. Um, and that built a bond that, to be honest with you with this day, is that 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 team, I'm extremely close with many of those players still. But it, it parlayed into our most successful athletic season because it makes sense in sports. Right. We know that you can have talent, but we know talent's not good enough alone. You've got to have the synergy of a team. You have to have the chemistry. You have to have all those things in team sports to have your most successful season. Mm -hmm. And um, so to know that actually my being authentic and sharing allowed that bond to be even better. And it resulted in our most successful you know, finish ever was was pretty um, overwhelmingly um, consistent with what we've seen now from athletes and coaches when they come out, they tend to have some of their most successful years in those years right in that year right after. Your shoulders lift. It feels like you could just breathe a sigh of relief. Because... Well, I, yeah, it's it partly partly is, and that's a second fact I think, and that's what the athletic side. When you spend a lot of your energy every day trying to hide something, like literally every moment of the day, you're trying to okay, did somebody see me look at that person? Did someone hear me? Did I say that a little too gay? Did I say you know whatever that means? You know, did I, I did I dress the wrong? Did I how was I walking? Did I walk in a way that made somebody think I'm in the locker room? Oh, my God. Did my eyes go over here? Did somebody think I'm looking here? And like it, you, you spend energy literally almost every second of the day hiding something. If you take that same amount of energy and you put it now into your sport or put it into your academics or put it into your personal life, just think of how all of those areas are going to be that much more enhanced. Because you're not wasting that every second of the day in energy of trying to hide something. So again, we we see it not, not only affect an individual, but it also then can affect a team. The other Absolutely. thing that we've seen is that team members on a when the, when a somebody comes out on their team and there's an accepting environment and people are you know value and they say it doesn't matter we love you anyways and you're just a great teammate and, and we support you and it's great. Athletes, other athletes on the team that are not gay are actually feel much more connected to their teammates and much more bonded to their teammates because of that one athlete that came out and the support that they saw. Because 
every one of us as human beings have insecurities. There's no person in this human race that doesn't have an insecurity about something, and some of us more than others. So when you're put into a situation where there is clear and present support for somebody that could easily be um, mocked or isolated, it, it gives a confidence to everybody in that circle, everyone in that group, everyone in that team to be to take a breath, a sigh of relief and go, whew, I'm in a, I'm in a safe, supported environment. So, wow. Talk about now, it. Talk about from a coaching standpoint. Absolutely everyone. And you, right. And so when I that. talk to when I talk to coaches across the country, straight coaches, when I'm talking to coaches about what's why is it important? for you to create this environment. I said, look, it's not important that your teammates come out or there are people on your team come out. I don't really care if somebody comes, comes out or not. What I want you to understand is that it is very important that you create the environment where if they did come out, they knew that they would be valued. That's it. Because, and I will tell you coaches in the room that I'm talking purely from a, a competitive standpoint. If you want to build the best team possible, then you want to create this culture because this is where your team all of your team members, not just the ones that are out or hiding, are going to feel safer and more connected to each other. Can and you, that's the recipe do, for winning. Can you please do something for me on behalf of people in hockey who like this sport but hate the culture? Can you say that to every hockey coach known to man, please? <laughs> because that, I, I, know, I, I know I say it all the time that hockey is horrible with this. But it's just – it's. Again, it seems like it's common sense, but in, in certain sports. Well, and you know, and I, I'm I'm not a hockey coach, and I haven't been in the hockey world, but certainly I know a lot of hockey players, and I know a lot of people that are in that world. And the interesting thing about hockey in general is that um, this is hockey got created the culture, in my opinion. It seems like from a different vehicle, and they it's the fighting on the ice. It's like that was the bond that that created the connection that you're trying to create, which is us against them. And we're in it together. And that's why I think that the, not only the hyper-masculine area on, on male hockey uh, teams, but I also think that's where that was coming from. It doesn't need to come from fighting. It doesn't need to coming from that display, but that, that's where it was coming from. Um, but you I don't know. know. I, I can see it. I can, I can see it. There's a lot of other parts of it that come in, but you know what? I had to point that out because, again, nobody in hockey thinks like that, and uh, it is the sport that most needs people like you to go kind of break up that mentality because it's amazing that coaches don't think like that. I have to ask this question before we get to what you've been doing recently and coaching at UCLA now. I have to talk about this because I have not had a, a woman on this show, which sucks, and I'm mad at myself that I haven't, but we always talk about how it's different in male sports and female sports. What, mean, what it means to be gay, what it means to be out for those two different worlds, and they're completely different worlds. But you have it so very interesting because you're an out man in a female sport. Yeah, yeah. And that is, and that is, and I can't think off the top of my head that there's many people like you out there. So you get to see the difference in both worlds. And yeah. it's something that I want to explore more on this show, and I need to explore more on this show. So I want you to talk a little bit about that because you get to see what it's like being an out man in a in a in a world where it would be thought from you know everyone else that it's predominantly more accepting because there's more women out and we could talk about why I think you and I both have reasons as you think why more women are out but talk yeah. about that no it's, it's a, we could do a literally a whole a whole show on this topic oh, I know because we could. Um, it's it's really interesting so first of all um, so when I came out I was the first publicly out um, gay coach male or female 
and Logo TV, I'll never forget it. Logo TV came out and they they had they're the ones that told me, you know, this was about a year and they said, you know, you're the only publicly out gay coach. And I said, oh, no, I'm not. And they said, oh, well, who then? And they put the microphone under my mouth and said, well, who is? And I was like, oh, my God, I can't say because I don't know if they're publicly out. There was plenty of female coaches that I knew and that were friends that had partners or, or had families or had been out. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like super uncommon, but nobody was out publicly. So it, it was a really light bulb moment. And what I realized is that, you know, in women's sports, you're assumed lesbian if you were in sports and you were women, a woman, right? So that's that's kind of the whole impetus behind all the bows and everything was that women have had to kind of create an image. If you were in sports, there's still probably only a smaller percentage than than the general population that were lesbian, but you were assumed to be a lesbian. So that that stigmatism was always there. So the lesbians that happened to be in sports very just lived their life and did what they did. The straight women in sport had to constantly combat that and had to constantly kind of tear down that stigmatism. So there was this weird um, homophobic on the flip side. On the male side, it was just the opposite. If you were in sport and male, you're assumed that you're straight. It's just like in the military. Well, if you're in the military, you must be straight. Well, if you play sports, you must be straight. So men who were questioning their sexuality flocked to sports to hide it. <laughs> so it, I would so I would odd, venture to right? say I would it, venture to say I would venture to say that there's probably at, at for a period of time there was probably a higher percentage of gay men in sports at the lower levels partly because they could hide their sexuality. Now, we all know that the environment that was created and that the culture that was created also shunned a lot of kids that were kind of appearing as gay to be kind of pushed out of sports because they were teased or whatever. So I'm not saying those people, but if you were, you know, presenting as masculine and presenting as a good athlete or presenting as a good teammate, you could be an athlete and hide easily your sexuality by just being committed to your sport and not ever having to kind of ever be questioned about your sexuality. And Ryan O'Callaghan called it his beard, which is, again, totally. I can't think of any better way to put it than that. Totally. And, and so and, it's and, the and complete how, opposite. How other stories have been told in male sports like that, but for women, it's 100% the opposite. And, it, and, right. it is, and it's so weird, but it also comes back, and I know you will probably agree with this, it comes back from the idea that sports are masculine and lesbian women are assumed to be masculine. It's, it's, well, it's for that, sure. I think, I think athletic, weird backwards, yeah. you know, right. It, it's just, and it's amazing so, now that we look back on it and you go like, really, that's what we thought for how long? What? Right. Well, and it's, I mean, honestly, it's still, it's still a very common, uh, in society, it's still very commonly thought that way. I think inside of sports, it's not thought that way as much, but certainly on the outside, you know, when I still tell friends that I'm coaching softball, um, and it's even in the gay community, like I, I'm coaching softball. Oh, you must have a lot of lesbians on your team. Like, I'm like, really? You think I'm like, we're the number one team in the country. We're the most talented team in the country. And you think just because I'm coaching women that there's going to be more lesbians than the general population. And there's not. It's, it's going to be the same exact percentage because athleticism and sexuality do not correlate. There's no correlation between the two on the male side or the female side. It, so. It 
It is amazing. This is what happened. But many straight women for decades shunned away from getting involved in sports because they didn't want to be labeled as lesbian. So do you see what I'm saying? So, so all of a sudden, the percentage does seem higher in women's sports. Whereas today, because that's not as much of a factor, you don't see any higher percentage of lesbians um, in sport than you do on the male side. The percentage is going to be the same as, as uh, you know, the general population because athleticism and talent is not correlated to sexuality. I've always joked and I've said that to people, especially to, to male friends and people who I've talked about, about, you know, out people in sports, I said, I'm going to give you the calculations of the general population. And I use a UCLA study. I think it's what, like 4.5%? Oh, no, it's 11, 11 plus oh, percent. But yeah, whatever it, is, whatever it is, the number is, but you can do yeah. whatever you want. And then you chop that number down. And I'm like, if this is what's happening, you know, and these numbers are flat across humanity and they have to be because that's how genetics works you know, then there are a certain number of people in every single sport, doesn't matter where they are, doesn't matter what country they're in that are gay. It's just, it's a statistical fact. If there True. were zero, it would be the statistical fluke of the history of humanity and the history of math. It's just impossible. And it's the same right. with women. And I've all, and I say that because, you know, people, you know, they, they assume, like, and I, you still see it less now than you did, but um, yeah. it also comes back to my running joke of the show, which is the most insecure people in the world are straight white men. But anyway, we don't have to yeah. get into that. It, you know, the interesting thing that kind of transitioned to out of it. So when I did come out, um, I immediately and this whole statement came out, I immediately called a couple of my friends, one of them being Jenny Allard, who was coaching at Harvard. And I reached out to because she had served on several panels at Harvard, um, you know, on LGBT issues in sports. So I felt like that was public. And so I immediately called her. I said, Jenny, I said, I have to apologize. They've put this label on me, but I'm like, I know you're doing this work at, at Harvard, so I don't know why. And she said, Kirk, it doesn't matter. The fact that we're having the conversation is the only thing that matters. I'm like, okay, you're right. But it was just weird. And then ironically, moving forward, when I was becoming more visible and more outspoken, the only kickback I got in athletics the only kickback I got in athletics was from the closeted lesbian women, not anyone else. And they kept saying, Kirk, why are you talking about this? It doesn't matter. You don't need to talk about it. We don't need to bring this up. We don't need to stir this up again. And oh. the thing was, is they were combating. These were women who had been, went through a time when they were persecuted. And they were and so they they worked very hard to downplay that there was a sexuality in sports. And so they liked living their, their compartmentalized life. I've got my sports life here. I do my job. I'm great at it. I'm well-respected. Nobody talks about my, I don't have a partner. Nobody talks about, I don't have a husband. And then I go home and I have my, my partner and my life and my friends and my gay life. And then I never let those two worlds ever intersect. Meanwhile, on the male side, every male football coach that has a wife and every basketball coach, they have the teams over to the house for dinner. The wife travels on the road trip with the team, like they're integral part of the team. But on the women's side, they, they compartmentalize and separate it out because that's how they could survive. And the fact that I was bringing up this conversation about sexuality and sport was was causing them to kick back and go, don't rock the boat. We like our life right now. We're fine. So it was really interesting. You had the ability to do it, again, as a man in women's sports, which is not 
it was, again, it's an interesting juxtaposition of the two worlds. Right. I'm how... technically less threatening, right? A male, a male coaching females, there's certainly always that, and I happen to be single, I would be like, oh, is he sleeping with his players or whatever it might be. Well, now well, you now, have to worry about that. Right. Well, so I actually technically become safer, right? I, I was, in terms of a sexual predator. Now, just because there's an opposite, you're coaching somebody the opposite sex doesn't mean you're a sexual predator, right? That's a horrible, no. horrible analogy to begin with. But if you were going down that road, right, I've, I've become safer. But at the same time, what I what I was experiencing was it wasn't that I was it was okay for me to come out because there was a lot of women that said, oh, it's easy for you to come out because you're coaching women. And these were the same women that were that were closeted. They said, but we're we can't come out because we happened then we would be more of a threat. And I said, well, I said, here's the problem with that is that most of the time, the conversation is not about, are you a sexual predator? The conversation is, is what are you teaching these young, impressionable athletes? And so when it comes to that topic, I said, look, I'm no more safe. I'm just as, I'm just as threatening to a parent who is raising their daughter to, to believe a certain belief about homosexuality or about gay people. And if I'm having this conversation openly as, as a leader, um, I'm potentially challenging those those beliefs and those mores that the parents have tried to instill. So I'm just as threatening because I'm a male. I may not be a sexual threat, right? But I'm still a threat to the mores that they've they've instilled. So understanding that it appears that I'm safer, but at the same time, it's not necessarily um, always viewed that way. So it's, it's a really interesting course. topic. It's not, it's not about who it is, it's the message. And if the message disrupt right, someone's right. world they're gonna it's the fight or flight reactions if this that i held sacred as a fact of life is told is not a fact of life what else is not true right. and we right. talked about this on this show before we have to get to some of the things you've been doing in this decade this, that's some of the best discussion i've had about lgbtq athletes in sports ever and uh, not fitting it's with you uh but we have to talk now about some other things you've been doing and a lot of it is you come back to ucla and you've been at ucla for a long time now eight years i think uh, since you since coming back from Oregon State, we need to talk about Quality Coaching Alliance and Ghost Space. Now, if you don't know what they are, um, again, maybe if you're listening to this, you don't know what this is. But for most of you, I assume you do. Um, it is a place on Facebook. The Facebook groups where athletes, people in sports, doesn't matter where you are, or what you're doing. Like broadcasters can be in there, but athletes can be in there, journalists can be in there, people who work in front offices can be there, trainers, things like that. Um, do you do you think about just the legacy of having a place like that that you started and that you keep up and you keep you know pushing forward and you, people are joining it every day and every day I, I get up and I look at the stories and go wow that's pretty incredible and again some of these are public some of these are not but this is an incredible space just for people and they're it's growing every day because there are more athletes coming out every day more stories every day. Yeah. Think about the importance of that is like maybe for all of the great good you've done in coaching, this is a pretty good legacy to leave behind too. And I've always talked about impacting other people in sports saying, I want to help you. I want you to feel like you can be, right? And right, right totally. totally. Well, you know, it, 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 I will say this is that um, through this whole process and not long after I kind of got over being labeled as the gay coach, um, <laughs> I, I started to then realize that I, I had a quite a a passion for this work because it was something that was missing and it was something that was going to help a lot of people. And Nike, um, I will say this also felt the same way. And Nike actually signed me, um, 
as a as a spokesperson um, when they first heard my story. And so I was pretty excited to be able to get involved with Nike's passion for creating this healthier space in sport. And in doing so is kind of part of this whole process where we start. So that was kind of an interesting time as we started to kind of figure out that, oh, my God, I have a lot of passion for this. And through that process, a lot of great work was done. A lot of great people that were doing work were kind of brought together to do um, some of this work. And that's kind of where kind of all this ECA and Go Space kind of all began to start. And now here you are. How long have they been going on? Well, technically, um, technically Go Space uh, started after ECA. So ECA is listed in, on Facebook as starting in 2011. But it was closer to 2009, I believe, when we first had uh, this group. Um, and we first started talking about it and there was just about four or five of us, maybe six of us in the group. And, um, like I said, it kind of came about through just creating a place to go, whether you were out or not, that you could kind of feel a safe space. And it was all about coaching. And that's why it was called the quality coaching Alliance. And Roger Bingham really is the one that, um, really kind of created that as, as it started to become apparent was that, there was a need within sports for anybody that was working, whether you be an athletic director or in academic services, um, an athletic trainer, an umpire. So very quickly, I started to expand that to really open that up because we really needed a place for not just a coaching topic, but what it's like to be in sports and deal with LGBT issues and or survive and or um, thrive, you know, and um, so that's really where it came about. It was a few years after that, probably 2013, that um, Lauren Neidig, who was at, a swimmer at University of Arizona, um, had, had come out. And she said to me, we were at a, an LGBT sports summit that Nike had created. And she had said, hey, I want to do the same thing that you're doing with ECA and coaches. I want to do with athletes. And I'm like, great. And she said, do you want to kind of be a part of the group? And I said, sure. Um, and so getting involved with that group was, was really pretty exciting because it was a, uh, an interesting space. Obviously athletes, um, come out differently than, than professionals. And there was maybe more out athletes than there were actually out coaches. So it was a really an interesting time. And, um, again, that space really took off when we expanded to current and former, because at the time it was only current student athletes. But as you know, student athletes as a you know freshman sophomore junior all of a sudden there's going to be an attrition and they're going to leave the group so that group was going to be destined to remain very small um and not necessarily very engaged because it was if it was only current student athletes so i helped expand it to current and former so alumni and then we also expanded into the high school realm because there was a lot of people that played competitive sports in high school that maybe didn't go on and play at the collegiate level and they they had a voice and they had a, a, a need for a community as well. So Actually, um, you would think if people still use Facebook in the future, because uh, it is, you know, Facebook, uh, professionals eventually yeah. see that too. Right. So certainly there's a lot of people in ECA that were student athletes. So they kind of, there are a lot. And I just was on a call for about an hour and a half before this with some planning with a, a subgroup out of ECA and Go Space. And we laughed and said, you know, there's the, the student athlete group is smaller right now than the sports professional group. And um, we don't actually even have rec sport athletes in there. So 
there are a lot of people that play sports that want to be a part of that group. And, and if they weren't really a part of it being a student athlete, um, then we kind of don't add them to that group. The ECA group, we expanded to include um, maybe people that weren't student athletes. So people that are Olympians or people that have gone on uh, to, to be high level athletes internationally um, or that maybe played internationally and there wasn't a, an opportunity to be at a college or a high school and play sports. So we use ECA for um, those athletes as well, professional athletes and Olympians. And then uh, people like me. <clears throat> yeah, you know, and obviously ECA we expanded um, to include, include anybody that was kind of working and had a career in sports. Um, a lot of the experience that you're going to deal with in sports, um, we were seeing a lot of shared interest and shared um, value in terms of being a part of the community. So um, while it's called Equality Coaches Alliance, it's it's pretty far expanded uh, into virtually any uh, professional um, position that you would have in sports. I can I can definitely say that for a fact because I'm there now and uh, people like me are there now. It's not it's this journalist, this broadcaster, there's other people like that in and around. And and I think what's interesting for me is again, not all the stories are told publicly. Some of them don't necessarily want to. But it's just amazing to be in those groups and to see some of those stories and to see the support for some of these people. And it doesn't matter the sport. It doesn't matter the scenario. It, it's pretty amazing to see what, what people are, how, how people are being supported and how, you know, there are people you know in that group. And there are people you don't know in that group. But it, it is an interesting place. It is a, it's, a, it's a good place, I think, for a lot of people to feel like, you know, they have a place to be supported. And for a lot of people, they might not have had that before. And so that's it. And that's a, a comfortable place for a lot of people. And, and to, you know, I think, didn't ECA just go over 1,000 members? We just surpassed 900. So my 900. goal is to right. uh, to cross uh, that 1,000 threshold here before the end of the year. I think you can perhaps do that. You know, <clears> you, know <throat> you know, not many sports are going on at this moment. There will still be people who are, who are uh, telling their stories. And uh, is there anyone that of all the people, and I guess this would be public stories, not, not necessarily private ones for now, but public stories. Is there anyone that you got a chance to get to know and helped kind of work with and come out? Is there one that was most powerful and impactful just for you from your perspective? Wow. Um, there's been so many that uh, really I've built some, some amazing. Couple, and we're not being, we're not playing favorites here. Cause there's yeah. a lot of that I like. <laughs> well, obviously. listen, like there's a, 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 there's a couple of great examples and, and I'll use uh, Anthony Nicodemo as one. So Anthony Nicodemo, um, was a closeted uh, male um, coaching men's basketball, high school basketball back in New York. And um, he got connected to the group um, and was in the group, not out. Um, he actually attended a summit, one of our LGBT sports summits we had up at Nike in those early years and um, was blown away. And literally by the time he flew home to New York, he had already written his coming out letter to his team and um, kind of basically went through that process right there. So his story was pretty amazing because he went from feeling like he was the only one in the country in the position to feeling like, oh, my God, there's a lot of great people that are in this with me that he actually kind of came out. So his story has been fantastic. And he's obviously very active in ECA and across the country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so he's he's somebody that's a very close friend. Micah Porter at uh, Denver, very similar, um, was very closeted and, and was in the group for a while and then found the courage to kind of come out and be authentic um, and has continued to do a lot of great work there in Denver. Um, he's a track coach and athletic director. 
Um, you know, and then Kurt Miller um, is another great one. Kurt Miller was a closeted basketball coach who was semi-closeted because everybody knew that he was gay, um, but nobody would talk about it. Nobody interviewed him. No interview uh, was ever done. Never asked him about it. Uh, but he had a partner. And he just didn't want to be a part of that community. He didn't feel like it was valid or important. He felt like it was a distraction. And he went on and, and actually is is the um, working in the NBA now. And that's that's a very cool uh, the WNBA, a very cool transition was he finally came out when he was there, and has now become a really strong ab- advocate. Um, so again, him, so there's been a lot of basketball people actually, right. ironically, I, the basketball, there's a lot of good stuff being done in basketball. And, yeah. The- a couple, a couple that really impacted me personally, um, yeah. have certainly been, um, so Rick Welts, uh, was the, uh, yeah, CEO. Big. Yeah. And, and Rick Welts was an amazing story, obviously as being a CEO in the NBA. And when he, um, he first came out and I saw his story, I, sent him an email, um, dropped him an email and, and, you know, said, congrats, this is great. I'm super excited for you. And if you ever need anything, blah, 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 you know, just kind of a generic thing. We didn't know each other. Um, and a friend of mine actually, uh, was on his staff and Myers Drysdale was on his staff. So I, I kind of got his contact through her and, um, within minutes I had a response back from him and I was blown away. And he said, Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to hear from you. And it's been such an amazing journey. And this is also exciting. He said, but I have to tell you that <clears throat> I want to meet you because you're the reason that I came out or one of the reasons I came out. And he told me the story of him carrying my New York Daily News article around in his briefcase for about six weeks prior to him doing his story. And that that he felt like that was kept resonating with him that I could be professional and successful in sports and have a partner. He had a partner at the time, but, but it was closeted. So the fact that he had this great partner, he felt like, and he felt like there was other people in sports that had come out, he could do this. So that was a really powerful one for me. And obviously he's a a, a dear friend and, and, uh, super, super excited. He's technically not in ECA because he's not on Facebook, but um, he, but he's, he's certainly smarter than the rest of us. <laughs> but he's certainly um, been a great one. And then the other one that's been um, you know life changing for me in so many ways is is Billy Bean. And Billy um, Billy and I our stories really kind of our lives really kind of were in parallel here in L.A. Um, he in baseball and me in softball. He literally went to school you know, about four miles away at Loyola Marymount from where I did. And we had a lot of friends in common that were on the baseball team here or whatever, but we never knew each other. Um, he came out, um, and, and I came out a little after him. And so I had sent, we had been in contact and had knew each other's stories. But when I moved here to LA, he had just recently moved to LA. And so we got connected, um, immediately when I first moved down here and, um, and we literally, um, hit it off and we're best friends and we still are he's my best friend and so to be able to just kind of share in all of these adventures on the lgbt sports side um while he now has gotten hired back to be working for the commissioner of major league baseball as a special assistant and vice president um for diversity it's just been really amazing to watch um and be a part of that so so many things like that that really kind of come out of um building this community and, and this visibility. Why future guests, maybe? 
<laughs> I, hope so. I hope so. That'd be nice. I mean, I've got a list that is that is double digits, could probably get to triple digits of people I want on this show. But, you know, you're, you're giving me more ideas, which is great because I always need more ideas because eventually I'm going to get uh, enough not hearing from people that it will eventually I need to go down the list. <laughs> but that's OK. I'm not complaining about the 10 people, including you, that I've had on. It shows you that this community is growing. So there are many, many, many. And I think it's always important on these shows to talk about the people whose stories have impacted you the most. I've said it, the ones for me, and uh, some of them are in these groups, some of them are not. But these are, in, these are important stories, and I think every one of them is touched every way. And I think we, we both now, you know, and I've told this to people, the, the minute you come out, it is not as much about you, even though coming out is the most personal thing you're ever going to do. It's then you do it to help other people, and you never know whose story you're going to impact. For and, sure. And for that sure. Was, and, that's, and that's the thing that I... And, and, it, and it hits home with people. I think that changes their perception depending on, you know, where they are in their coming out process and who they are. And I think when you, when you say your story really changed my life, you know, that is one of the things that you have an incalculable impact. And you have had that. I don't know if I've had that. But if had well, that's the crazy thing is that we've, we've all had those impact on people and we don't even know. And that's that's really where it becomes powerful. And I'm, I'm a big proponent of obviously if you're in a good place and you're feeling uh, – the most important thing is that you feel safe and valid and authentic in your life. And if that's great and you feel like you're in a good environment, then by all means, take advantage of sharing your story because your story will hit people and will have a ripple effect. And that ripple effect, you don't know how far that ripple is going to go, people that you may never meet. Um, but it's no longer about you. If you're safe and you feel good and you're in a good place, that's the most important thing. Then the second thing is telling your story isn't an ego boost. It's about really your impact on others. Yep. And I, I can't tell you how many people you see in, you know, these outsport stories in the group and people telling their stories and the people who aren't out yet. And again, they could be in different places in their lives, but you just, you see that and you know, and, and I think the other thing that is great about these groups is even if they're not out publicly, you know, it's really, really important for some people who are earlier in their process or in a difficult place to know that they're there. You know yeah. what I mean? Because I always could talk about hypotheticals and say statistics tell me X number of people have to be gay in X number of places, and that's great. But they're hypotheticals, and hypotheticals yeah. only yeah. work for so long. To actually have the concrete evidence to say, yes, I'm gay, whether you're out or not, or I'm bisexual, I'm transgender, or whatever, you know, doesn't that is almost if not attackable, if not more. And yeah. I don't know yeah. how many people you've come across where it's just like the idea of knowing that there's somebody out there, whether they're out or not, is the most impactful thing, whether the story – and again, whether the story is told publicly. And that is something that you know, we relearn over time. And it's something Absolutely. that I've learned too because you know, I can reassure people you know, that there are other people out there like you. We just don't know who they are. But that doesn't really help reassure people. The yeah. actual story reassures people. And well, that's, and that's why I always advocate people coming out publicly because, you know what? I mean, like the impact is incalculable, and the impact that you could have is is something that I don't think any of us can actually realize and properly scope. And right. when when I, I tell the story of Colin Martin because it was the one that pushed me on the path to doing it, just the incalculable impact of something like that is the ripple effects. You still see it. You know, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. to me, and that's why I say like the, when w even the minor ones coming out is big, but then the bigger and bigger you go up the ladder, like you do really don't know how big the impact is. And yeah, I think it's, for some people, they still haven't really accepted the scope of that yet. Yeah, it's powerful and it's interesting. And that's a whole nother that could be a whole nother show as well, because 
the 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 ripple effects and then the relationships that you start to realize is that we had it um a day one year at the at the summit that we did is you know stand up and tell who is it that affected and was affected um your coming out process like who inspired you and then that person would stand up and then someone else would say and say well you're the one that inspired me and then it was like well you're the one that inspired me like you could see the 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 transition of how it happened so it wasn't necessarily the one coming out story might affect 10 or 15 people but those 10 or 15 people affected their 10 or 15 people you know what i'm saying it, so it, like it becomes the reverse coronavirus social distancing it, <laughs> i have to i have to say it but right right true it's true. And so as you, I mean, unfortunately we're in a time when there's no sports, but sports will eventually return uh, yeah. because of this. And I want to wrap this up because this is amazing. And we could go on for another two or three hours. I can imagine just talking about this because, you know, we're passionate about these issues for you. We're into a new decade. We're already, you know, in the last decade, we made incalculable progress. And I don't think do you have any measure of that incalculable progress. Like it just doesn't seem like there's a way to just, quantify how much progress made in the last decade. No, it, it's really overwhelming. I mean, when you think about it, even from if you took a five year window snapshot, you know, from 2005 to 2010, and then what happened between 2010 and 2015, and then obviously the last five years, I mean, it, it's really pretty crazy and amazing. And one thing that I wanted to touch on that I think is, is a really valuable topic is there's so many people that still, it's amazing to me, but there's still so many people that don't know that there are other people in sports like themselves like it to me it's unfathomable i'm like with the media they have and social media and everything are you kidding me you think you're the only one but we still come across that and i think that's that's a, almost a self um perpetuated asylum that athletes still will put themselves in but the other thing that you said that i think is really important and powerful and and while we are appreciative of some of the great organizations that have been created in sports uh by allies you know um th those Groups are great, um, but at the same time, we know for a fact, and you said this, the impact that an LGBT person can have by standing up or being visible in a room or in a space is exponentially more powerful than a straight ally standing up and saying, it's important to, to use the right language and it's important to not you know, discriminate and it's important to have good policies. That impact is, while it's great, is nowhere near the impact or or validity that you can have when an athlete or a coach or an individual actually comes out um, in front of you, and that to me is why it, Go Space and ECB, ECA become so important. Is that that visibility? While we love our allies and we we appreciate our allies, that visibility we know is exponentially going to be more valuable to it's, um, it's the sympathy. next generation. It's sympathy, and then there's empathy. And unless you've been in it and been through a coming out process, you can't, the empathy is something that is, uh, is something you can't really describe because if you're straight and, we, and we're glad that you're supporting the LGBT community, let's be clear here, uh, but you, you don't know what a coming out process is like. It's just, it's hard to describe what that is right. to somebody right. who has never gone through it and who, you know, and I know people say you're coming out every day and that's true, but you know, once you do the main public one, then it's like, okay, it's easier. You're coming out by just existing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's that step that I think is, is so important. And in particular spaces, it's more important. As you said, in certain sports, we are further along than we are in others. I keep thinking of my hockey example. I'm like, 
you need examples of people who are out. Well, congrats, there aren't any, you know. Yeah. But yeah. in a, in a place like basketball, where it's it's growing, or in a case of individual sports, it's it's a lot easier to do it in individual sports than it is because you're on your own as opposed to in a team and you have that the team concept. But I mean, like again, the incalculable impact of stories, and again, we can name hundreds of them, and we're not gonna we don't have the time to name hundreds of them. But I mean. Every one of you who is listening to this, if you're out or you're not out, you've been thinking about stories that have impacted you. And again, the impact on that will ripple for generations. And that's why I keep saying, like, all these are great. But when there's a real, like, legit big one, you know, like, and you'll know it when you see it. If there's a, a like, a proper big one, like, you really, the impact could, like, and that's why I keep saying, like, I want it, even though whatever happens, who knows. The impact of something truly major, like a true major league athlete being out, doesn't matter who it is. You know, Colin Martin well, was not it, exactly, you know, the biggest athlete in the world, but that impact is again. Yeah, and I think it's it's that. it's interesting. I, I do think that um, there is definitely validity to that, but I also think we have to be careful of perpetuating that that is a, um, you know, a, a watershed moment because. We already oh, know that watersheds we, we, every single day. I just keep thinking like it's it's a, it gets a glass ceiling. We're breaking a lot of them, but that seems to me like the final one. You know what I mean? And and I think that but the one thing that I, I will say to that is that you know we we've had some of those watershed moments, and it's almost causing more people to be resistant to coming out because nobody wants to be that focal point uh, in a sports environment. And at the end of the day, if if uh, if a quarterback in the NFL or a, a you know a pitcher in Major League Baseball comes out, it is going to be big news. But it's also going to be pretty pretty fleetingly changing news. It's going to like move on pretty quickly in this news cycle. It's not going to be this this iconic thing that's going to hand us favor. But what it will do, and I agree with you, it will do it will continue to break down a little bit of those different barriers that are out there. But um, but the problem that we have to always deal with in in our world is that we are an invisible minority. So, you know, as public as my coming out has been over the last 15, you know, years, it's like articles all the time. It is what it is. It's like, how would anybody not know that? I still will meet somebody in the softball world and they'll ask that I see, I have a daughter and they'll ask what my wife does. And it's like, well, I don't have a wife. <laughs> I'm single right now. But before that I had a partner. I mean, it doesn't happen a lot, but even as out as I am, um, it's not stamped on my forehead. It's not an it's not an identity that I wear visibly. And for the LGBT community, it's an invisible minority. So you, it we're never going to get to the place where people are going to say, "I just want to get to the place where nobody has to come out." And that's never going to happen because that's an unrealistic expectation. What is a, a realistic expectation is that nobody feels the need that they have to hide, and that is far more valuable than the need to have to come out. Um, and that's, that's because that talks about how I can live my life authentically and not be affected by my sexuality versus I have to be out to be able to do that. And I think that's where we have to be very careful in the LGBT community is, is creating these watershed moments or these glass ceilings that still they're, they're not, they shouldn't be viewed as being the echelon of what we need to achieve. I do believe what we want to get to the point of achieving is that creating an environment culture where nobody feels the need to hide more than it is more that they is somebody that comes out and now it changes everything for everybody. 
because that's just not going to be the case. Yeah, I I agree with you. My fear is still, though, that society and the way people are going to grow up and and the fact that there's never you can't eradicate some of those those deep seated things from society as much as we want to try to, you know, yeah, that's still going to create places where people feel like they have to hide. Hopefully it's less and less that time. I again, we've been on forever. (laughs) True, true. But we yeah. don't forever, and I appreciate Kirky coming on again on a Saturday in a time when you normally be play, uh, coaching and doing all these things. So I want to leave you with this. What do you want to say? Let's go for a five-year increment, okay? And we are going to play sports again. Coronavirus will go away. Uh, what do you want to say? What do you hope to accomplish in the, in the next five years with LGBTQ people in sports? Well, I, I think um, what, what personally one of the things that I've, I really hope to see in the next five years would be that we have um, taken the group of ECA and GoSpace and X, who we've created much more of a, um, I guess, an association or a uh, an alliance that is really a professional alliance. So there's a professional component to it, just like you, you might see with the Black Coaches Association or whatever it might be, that really have an impact on policy and really have an impact on job creation and um, and, and a place where LGBT individuals are not just supported to how they're not discriminated against, but supported in how they can advance their opportunity professionally uh, in, in any different realm. So. Um, what I hope to see is that um, some of these organizations that exist today can become more unified in that way um, and, and create more of a, a vehicle. Um, but, yeah, the coming out stories, I, I, would, I would love to see some more big, big, big news coming out stories to happen in the next five years. But if they don't, there's still some amazing gains to be made with what's already happened um, and taking that momentum forward. Kirk, again, where can people find you? Your last chance. On the show for you to plug yourself, which people you should know where Kirk is anyway. But in case you don't, well, yeah, you know, um, I've got my hands in a lot of things. But uh, right now, the the best way to, to get a hold of me or always can reach me is through UCLA. I'm still coaching at UCLA, and, and I expect to be here for the next um, foreseeable future. Um, I'm not looking to leave. Um, at some point, I will probably be um, not coaching at the collegiate level, but uh, we'll see when that happens. I'm also coaching professionally in the NPF with the California Commotion. And I'm heavily involved with online coaching education through the art of coaching. So those are a couple of places where you can see a lot of uh, a lot of me and I guess a lot of things that I'm doing. But certainly uh, Outsports um, has been covering more about GoSpace and ECA. So I would love for us to be able to kind of continue to make connections through uh, GoSpace and ECA and uh, get more and more uh, people in sports that are that are working and and competing in sports to be uh, a part of a community. Thank you so much for spending a long time with us today. It was awesome, and uh, hope we didn't keep you too long. And I hope coming soon you don't have to worry about spending too much free time uh, at home because you can actually <laughs> play sports again. Uh, well, hopefully, I'm looking forward to getting back onto the field, and uh, hopefully, that'll happen soon. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to covering it. Hopefully All right. I can get a job play by play. Thanks, Kirk. We will talk soon. Thank you.